Good morning and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am really delighted to have one of the nation's premier journalists on the program today, Robert Draper, a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, uh, author of several books, including his most recent, To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq, and he's also a writer for National Geographic. So first of all, Robert, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, it's really my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Well, if I was a really serious person and I had somebody like Robert Draper on my podcast, I would not start by playing a soundbite from Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about the gazpacho police. If I was a really serious person, but I'm not that person. So can we just play this? Not only do we have the D.C. jail, which is the D.C. gulag, but now we have Nancy Pelosi's gazpacho police spying on members of Congress, spying on the legislative work that we do, spying on our staff, and spying on American citizens that want to come talk to their representatives. This government has turned into something it was never meant to be, and it's time to make it end. I don't know what she means, but make it end. I'm sorry, Robert, but the gazpacho police, it's, it's almost as if that visit to the Holocaust Museum didn't really take for her. Yeah, well, I call to your attention, though, Charlie, the summer of 2020, when um, when she um, became the surprise front runner for uh, Georgia's 14th congressional district and was now going to be in a runoff um, with the guy who was expected to win. Oh, yeah. And suddenly the um, the national media began to pay attention to her and began to disclose via the opposition research files they were acquiring all the stuff about her connections with QAnon and, and her other rather unusual theories about what goes on in the world. And people, I think, figured, certainly in Washington, that, that this was going to bury her alive. It did not. It did not make a single dent in, in her popularity in the 14th. Instead, she was looked as you know someone who was being picked on by the elitist fake news media. I bring all that up to say that gazpacho, Gestapo, it doesn't matter. It doesn't home. matter. No, it doesn't matter. In fact, she'll probably figure out a way to weaponize this. The, the elites are making fun of me again. You know, yeah, they're talking yeah. about their fancy food. It's sort of like making fun of me for not using the right fork, and I embrace it. But You know, I've been working on this book about the current state of the Republican Party, Charlie, and when I began it um, on the morning of January 6th last year, actually, Marjorie Green was widely viewed as, at best, a marginal character who would just kind of be kicked to the curb by the Republican establishment. She's a very, very powerful member of the party now, and, and in particular, a wizard at on, online fundraising. So to your point, I mean, I think that she will weaponize um, uh, this weapon against her uh, as an online um, fundraising tool. And I'm sure she's going to make you know hundreds of thousands of dollars off of this gaffe. But at least she provided us with a day's worth of entertainment and broke <laughs> the internet last night. So look, there were there are a lot of good entries in all of this, but the gazpacho police had that. Catherine Rimpel from the Washington Post, uh, though, had one of the best. Uh, next thing you know, she writes, uh, the gazpacho police will come for your Mazel Tov cocktails. <laughs> um, I just, I, they, Vichy Swa, I just, it's, yeah. You know, yeah. we need we needed that desperately. But actually, this is a good segue into what I wanted to talk to you about. You have this uh, this masterful piece. Michael Flynn is still at war, which covers, you know, all of his efforts to overturn the election. And I I wrestle with this this dilemma. Are these people ridiculous clowns or are they dangerous menaces? And I think yeah. with Marjorie Taylor Greene, you see this but with Michael Flynn as well. I mean, this is a man who was a general. He was the national security advisor. And there's a certain comedic quality to him. But there's also the, oh, my God, this guy used to be the national security advisor and a general. 
And so he's scary. So let's let's talk about Michael Flynn and, you know, how how he came to be what he is right now. Sure. Uh, well, you know, I mean, Charlie, for starters, both things can be true at once. I mean, yeah, he right. can be, you know, sort of a pathetic character and also a dangerous one. I mean, I, it's as I point out in in the recent story of mine, I mean, Flynn on the MAGA circuit is probably the second most um, commanding presence after Trump himself. He has really? a pretty vast constituency. Yes. And it's and uh, and as a result of that, and, and of course, the um, the three stars that he wears as a retired general um, uh, confers on him a kind of legitimacy sure. that the ordinary Charlie Kirk wouldn't have. But there's you know one more piece of this, and that piece is that he fulfills the martyr narrative that is central to MAGA mythology. That is, um, they came for him, a three-star general, and if they, the deep state, will try to take him down and indeed succeed in doing so, imagine what they'll do to you, ordinary MAGA patriot. And so, um, so he's very, very important in terms of in his narrative, not just in terms of his credentials. Well, and also his his connections. I mean, the you know the 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 connections to these military types who are still working to get the election thrown out. Um, I mean, this is this is one of the big questions I have in my mind. Is you know, are there people in? You would think, by the way, that there'd be a rather aggressive, robust vetting system for anyone who would become a three star general, right? Yeah. And yet he became a three star general. What else is out there? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's interesting. I mean, Flynn became a a three star general paradoxically right at the point at which his his career was about to take a turn for the worse. They they brought him to Washington after he had achieved great renown and success as the chief intelligence officer for uh, the U.S. military, mm -hmm. first in Iraq and then later in Afghanistan. So then Jim Clapper and others decided, let's bring this guy into the office of the D director of national intelligence, spend a year grooming him, and then make him the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Mm -hmm. And it's precisely at that point when they brought him to Washington that they gave him the third star. And it was also at precisely at that point that he, Peter, principled out, that, that it became clear that, okay, he was pretty good, you know, on the on the battlefield or at least um, behind a desk in a battle uh, in a battle arena but in washington he didn't play well with others he frankly wasn't terribly competent and was ultimately booted out a year early from his three-year tenure at, at the bia so this is a loaded question but but it's going to be at the back of everybody's mind is michael flynn crazy or is he doing this intentionally i mean has has something happened to him does he believe all of these bizarre conspiracy theories or is he playing a role of some kind yeah i mean you're right charlie that's a central question and i guess the short answer to it is that no he truly believes all this now does he from time to time show a kind of opportunism in trying to monetize these beliefs yes mm -hmm. for example i don't know that he ever believed in that there was a cue you know some some secretive military intelligence official uh, who had ties to Trump and was dropping these cute drops onto the Anons. In fact, um, he was caught on tape in a phone conversation he had a few months ago with Lynn Wood, the other conspiracy theorist, saying that he, Flynn, now believed that the whole QAnon thing was a bunch of nonsense and maybe even a disinformation campaign perpetrated by the kinds of CIA officers he himself used to train um, to promulgate 
uh, this kind of disinformation. So, so it's it's entirely possible that that Flynn recognized that QAnon was BS all along. But like a lot of people, frankly, in Republican Congress, has kind of placed himself in alignment with QAnon because they have there's a large constituency there. And if you say the right things, in this case, where we go one, we go all, and other yep. QAnon um, slogans, uh, it's gonna it's gonna up your your following. So I do think that that he's done that. Okay, so your story, your article opens with Trump announcing on Twitter on November 25th last year, I mean, not last year, 2020, uh, 2020, that he's pardoning Flynn. And just to remind people that that Flynn had had a rather spectacular fall. He'd been fired um, as national security advisor for lying to the vice president. Then he pled guilty in 2017 to lying uh, to the FBI uh, about his contacts with Russia. So this guy, you know, he went through some things, right? He went through some things, but he managed to work his way back into favor of MAGA world. I guess this dynamic is important because, you know, I, I know a lot of people who have been, you know, un, you know, have had their time in the barrel and, and many of them are really broken and changed by that experience. I mean, obviously, this is crucial to understanding Michael Flynn right now, right? The fact that he was, he lost everything, he was disgraced, he was facing prison, and yet he had to claw his way back into favor and got the pardon from uh, from President Trump. Sure. Well, the, the way he was able to do so, of course, was to hold himself out as a victim of the deep state. So the the mythology, the martyr mythology of, of Michael Flynn centers around the claim uh, that uh, that Flynn was unfairly persecuted and prosecuted uh, by uh, the Department of Justice for a crime that he didn't really commit, or alternatively, a crime that he was kind of egged on into doing, that he only broke and pled guilty to save his son from the clutches of um, the Department of Justice, and that in the meantime, the DOJ withheld exculpatory information and all of this stuff. So it's through that kind of persecution myth that he's able to claw yeah. his way back to basically saying, to anybody out there who, who wonders whether there is a deep state, I'm here to hold myself up as the poster boy of the deep state. So you tell a fascinating story. So so the, the day of the pardons, the day before Thanksgiving, and he was down in South Carolina, uh, flew down there on this private jet owned by the former CEO of Overstock, Patrick Byrne, to really become very, very involved in this attempt to overturn the the election. So, you know, th- you know, f- almost wherever you look in this attempt to overturn the election, Flynn is there. So tell me a little bit about Patrick Byrne and Michael Flynn. Sure. Yeah. The two men only met each other in the middle of November. Byrne um, became convinced uh, late on election night, November the 3rd, 2020, that the election had been stolen. He told me uh, that fraud had been committed You know, of, of a vast amount. He told me that the following day, November the 4th, he, a colonel named, uh, uh, army colonel named Phil Waldron, and yeah. uh, another guy, Russ Ramslin, got on his Burns private plane, flew to the Beltway, and thereupon um, announced uh, to Rudy Giuliani that they were there to help. They were there to assist in efforts to um, to uncover fraud and thus reverse the election results. At that juncture, Giuliani was um, beginning to work with Sidney Powell, who happened to be Flynn's attorney in the efforts to uh, withdraw his guilty plea and get a finding of not guilty. Uh, so there's Byrne 
Giuliani and Sidney Powell with a few others in Confederacy. At that immediate stage, Flynn was frankly just interested in his own legal case, but that began to change around the time that Byrne um, decided he wanted to set up a kind of war room. And Flynn then suggested, well, why don't we do this away from the bellways, you know, so, so that we can, you know, kind of conduct our affairs in utter secrecy without looking over our shoulders. Uh, Sidney Powell then got in touch with the aforementioned um, attorney Lynn Wood. Lynn Wood agreed to house them at his Tomatley Plantation in South Carolina. And so after November the 20th, a bunch of people started flying over there, including Byrne and Flynn on a private plane. And there they set up a sort of, you know, war room in which they began to review supposed evidence of fraud. And Flynn himself began to conjure up a notion that as a means of dealing with this fraud, that perhaps there could be a military option. That is to say, uh, a way, a way in which the president of the United States, the commander in chief, could deploy the National Guard and U.S. Marshals to six contested states, seize the voting machines, seize the backup ballots, and then via live stream or some other method, do a recount. This was what Flynn was preoccupying himself with. And you you lay out the timeline. I mean, by the middle of December, he is you know you know lining up those options about seizing the voting machines. December 18th, um, he, Byrne, and uh, Sidney Powell are at the White House, and they make the case in the Oval Office directly to Trump about the possibility of using U.S. Marshals or the National Guard. So getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but he has a breakup with Lynn Wood and, and yeah. some of the others, a breakup with some of the what. I, so there's kind of an onion of crazy here where they've, they've they've kind of splintered off into factions where does Michael Flynn think that somebody else is crazier than he is? Is that sort of the dynamic? You know, it's hard to tell. I, I, my, my suspicion, Charlie, and the evidence seems to suggest this, is that a lot of it just comes down to money. Uh, so Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn split the sheets because Flynn believed that Powell was withholding from him money that he felt entitled to. Uh, Lynn Wood and Flynn um, uh, came to a disagreement because uh, Lynn Wood felt undercut by claims made by uh, Kyle Rittenhouse that yes. Wood had yeah that Wood had fleeced him and this in turn was you know undercutting uh, Wood's constituency in the MAGA world and thus his own financial opportunities and he felt that Flynn was on the side of Kyle Rittenhouse on this so so there's a lot of this work and it doesn't quite have to do with crazy mm -hmm. and there there are various gradations of it I do think it has much more to do with opportunism with grifting and you know who gets a piece of what who gets to have the following who gets to be the arbiter of the so-called truth so what's really alarming reading your account is as how locked in Flynn was on this idea of military intervention. You know, even after these meetings in the White House where clearly there are, the lawyers are going, what, no, we're not going to do this. Bill Barr, no, we're not going to do this. Mm -hmm. Michael Flynn would not let go of this idea of military intervention. And I guess the question is, you know, how big is the constituency in the military for this kind of thinking? Because it seemed at the time that the the top brass in the uh, the Department of Justice and the military were concerned about this, and they all issued statements that we're not going to get involved. There's no role for the military. So, do you have any sense of is you know Flynn just you know freelancing on this, or, or is there because you keep you, you know this, your story mentions retired colonels and other people who had been involved in the military? Is this a thing? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a thing in the kind of larger military ecosystem, yes, Charlie, but as to whether or not it was ever a thing amongst those people um, who were in a position to do something about this, fortunately, we'll never know. I mean, we, I think we can deduce from his comments that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, you know, um, certainly wouldn't truck with any of this stuff. But you're correct that there were other retired generals such as McInerney, such as Paul Vallely, uh, Tom McInerney, Paul Vallely, who themselves have become right-wing conspiracy theorists, who also were very much of the belief that an existential crisis was now facing America because the election had been stolen by foreign entities, and this was essentially America at war. And yes, we needed to use the military. Wow! For but you're but you're right that like Flynn was trolling about after after the White House essentially rejected his view of this military option with Rudy Giuliani sort of um, surprisingly emerging as the voice of reason, uh, yes. telling <laughs> telling Patrick Byrne later that he had drawn a line in the sand on the military option because, quote, um, uh, we would all end up in jail. We would all end up in prison if this happened. Uh, so then Flynn starts trying to market his idea to somebody else, and he goes to Ezra Cohen, who was the um, uh, Department of Defense's undersecretary for intelligence, tries to pitch it to him. And when Cohen says, no, sir, I think the election's over. Let's move on. Flynn yells at him, you're a quitter. Don't be a quitter. He tries to get to the director of national intelligence, Ratcliffe, uh, to no avail. He tries um, to uh, talk to Devin Nunes um, uh, via uh, Derek Harvey, um, who had been a cohort of, of uh, Flynn's in the military and at that point was working with Nunes to explore this crazed Italy gate hallucinatory notion that um, that somehow uh, uh, an Italian military contractor had managed to fudge the election results. So he's, he's moving around all over the place. You're exactly right. And ultimately, there are no takers. And there's Flynn at the end fuming uh, and uh, calling everyone cowards. So let's flash forward to um, Michael Flynn as a rock star of, of the MAGAverse. Uh, you, you described this this rally in Phoenix in January 2022 at the Reawaken America conference, which you described as a right-wing roadshow that combines elements of a tent revival, a trade fair, and a sci-fi convention. And this is for people who think that, okay, here's this sketchy, discredited, disgraced guy. No, this is why he's such a draw, isn't it? Yes. I mean, going back to the opportunism thing, one of his colleagues said to me, I mean, look where the guy is now. What the hell else is he going to do? I mean, does anybody think he's going to be a lobbyist for Raytheon or something, you know, or Boeing? All he has left, essentially, are these kind of QAnon adjacent mega conferences. Um, that being said, uh, a lot of people go to these conferences. A lot of people go to Trump rallies. He He does have a real voice in them. And, you know, it's it's really easy for particularly a lot of us in the Beltway um, to overlook this new media ecosystem in which people like Mike Flynn are prominent voices. And what I'm referring to are right side broadcasting, One American News, Real America's Voice. I mean, you know, uh, a lot of folks we know haven't even heard of Real America's Voice, which is just a propaganda arm for um, for Trump and the MAGA world. But I mean, on that, uh, the the broadcasters are rock stars, and Flynn himself is a rock star among rock stars. And so, so yes, he he does he does have himself a real following. He does command large speaker fees, so I'm told, and and uh, uh, and he does uh, he he does have a demonstrable effect. And when we 
ask ourselves the question, how is it that um, something like 70 percent of um, self-described Republicans believe that Biden was not legitimately elected? How, how, how did that belief come to be so widespread? The answer is um, lies in these right wing media outlets and the loudest voices in them, among them Mike Flynn. So you write, all of this is bewildering to some of those who knew Flynn in his former life as a celebrated intelligence officer in the Iraq and the Afghanistan wars and watched his spectacular fall from grace with bafflement and regret. Um, He's burrowed his way from a Beltway graveyard into this subterranean afterlife. It is truly extraordinary watching um, the transformation, but he's really managed to sort of understand the currents of what, what you describe as the shape-shifting MAGA universe. And this really has taken on a life of its own, even beyond the Republican Party and Donald Trump. I, I mean, I give, give me your sense of this. I know you're working on a book on the state of the Republican Party. It strikes me that we have reached a point where things have been set in motion that even if Donald Trump disappeared, they would go on. Oh, I certainly think, yeah, yeah I, th- I certainly think that's the case, Charlie. I think that the notion that with the demise, however form that takes of Donald Trump, so goes the demise of, of Trumpism is a really dubious proposition because Donald Trump has shown the Republican Party a new way. I mean, famously after 2012, when Romney lost and then head of the RNC, Reince Priebus, commissioned this growth and opportunity project that was basically about how how to grow the party, particularly amongst younger voters and Latinos, you know, that's a hard thing to do, to convince people who don't like you to like you in any walk of life, that is. Well, Donald Trump has essentially offered a far more appealing formula, which is like, you know, to to hell with these people who don't like us. We can ignore them. In fact, we can demonize them. What we really need to do is excite the base that we have and find low propensity voters who have been on our side all along, but have been kind of disaffected and bring them into the fold and get them to turn out. So, that's a that's a far easier proposition than um, than to persuade, and and so it, and particularly that's an easy proposition to pull off uh, when you use demagoguery, when you use demonization, and and uh, you know the things that Donald Trump, the tools that he was using, are not tools of his own invention. He just used them, you know, with um, uh, sort of to greater effect and and with less shyness than previous Republican leaders. So now there's, it seems very unlikely to me that that that's going to go away. And as for Flynn and his role in all this, what I'd say is that, you know, Flynn has kind of taken a page from Trump in, in his mastery of branding. I mean, now what's Flynn is widely described in MAGA world as America's general or the people's general. I'm not even quite sure what that means. And it's a particularly bizarre fit. I've talked to, you know, people in the military world and they say, what the hell? I mean, the guy was, um, he was uh, possibly using stronger language, but, but saying what he was, was a manager of intelligence groups. I mean, he was not a battlefield commander. He was not Eisenhower. He was not Colin Powell. He wasn't even David Petraeus. So that this guy would somehow be what America thinks of, quote unquote, as, you know, America's general or the people's general, some kind of populist general, is just a bizarre formulation. But it certainly works from a branding standpoint. So let's go back to the beginning, actually, before the beginning. The part three of your of your story, you know, talks about, you know, before and I'm fascinated by this before part of the story, you know, before he descends into election conspiracism. You know, he 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 was known for being, you know, unorthodox um, as a top intelligence officer. Um, 
And, um, you know, Obama, uh, so let's, let's talk about, you know, why he was fired by Obama. What happened back then? I mean, he obviously had a lot of fans. Barack, the Obama administration wasn't buying him and they kicked him out. How did that all play out? Yeah. So the, the most important thing to understand is that a central tenant of, of Flynn, you know, martyr mythology is that he was fired because he was telling uncomfortable truths about Islamic extremism and it, and it upset Barack Obama. Let's start with this fact. Barack Obama didn't know who Mike Flynn was. He never once met him. Flynn did, really? you know, Flynn never sat on the, as the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, he doesn't sit in principals meetings, nor does he sit at NSC meetings. So that's, you know, um, there are other people who do that. So Obama, as Jim Clapper, the former head of national intelligence, said to me, would not have known Mike Flynn if he fell over him. What happened with Flynn was that Flynn, when he got to Washington, decided he wanted to reshape the DIA, did it in ways that at some junctures were smart, you know, had, had a kind of logic to them. But he was very bull in a china shop about it. He defied civilian authority frequently. He was told to do things and didn't do them. He did things when he was told not to do them. And ultimately, his civilian superiors, a guy named Mike Vickers and then Clapper, were the ones who came to Flynn and said, you know what, we're, this is, a, of course, a three-year tenure genuinely, we would like for it to be two. We would like for you to resign. Now, Flynn has, has since claimed that the reason he was fired was because he said during some committee hearing that we were less safe than we'd been in years prior due to the spread of ISIS and the feckless Obama administration's unwillingness to deal with the rise of ISIS. That, in fact, is not true. Uh, Flynn never said that at any committee meeting. He said that five months after he was told to resign, and he said it at the Aspen Institute. And uh, and further, when he said it at the Aspen Institute, even then he said, yeah, we're less safe. But the good news, we realize that and we're doing something about it. So this whole notion of Obama versus Flynn and Flynn as the promoter of uncomfortable truths, the guy who would tell it like it is and was you know, cast out by Obama in the deep state is 100 percent fiction. So let's talk about this. You know, he, he gets this gig with Fox News. He regularly criticizes Obama. And then there was, I totally had forgotten about this, this whole 2015 thing where he accepts money for a speaking appearance in Moscow in honor of RT, which is the, one of the propaganda arms of, uh, of, of the Kremlin. And again, this would normally be a completely disqualifying moment, but it's not. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, so and again, this is a confluence of belief and opportunism that we see in the trajectory of Mike Flynn. Flynn actually did believe that there was common cause to be made with Russia because Russia with the Chechen movement that Putin felt as he did about Islamic extremism, that it needed to be crushed. And so so. There was that. There was also hubris on Flynn's part, believing that, look, I can stand toe to toe with Putin. This guy's not going to spin me or use me in any way. There was also opportunism because he was paid $44,000 as a speaker's fee to Ooh. show up to the Russia Today gala and sit, as it turned out, um, uh, at, at, um, at a table right next to Putin. There is no way that all of this shakes out as advantage Mike Flynn, except that he pocketed 44 large. Uh, you know, it's Putin who comes out ahead because he's sitting next to a former head of the DIA. And basically, it looks like I own this dude. So um, and it began, of course, and, and this was also happening at the end of 2015, 
before he joined the Trump campaign, but by the time he then signs on as a senior advisor to the Trump campaign in the summer of 2016, there's already a lot of concern about contacts made between certain campaign operatives of the Trump campaign and Russian operatives, and that only increases in the months to come. And so Mike Flynn doing this, and then later in the thing that got him indicted, as you alluded to before, having these phone conversations on the side with Russia's ambassador to the U.S. during the Trump transition, and then lying about it first to the vice uh, president-elect Mike Pence, and then later to uh, two FBI agents. All of this is like deeply problematic and only and it's bad for Flynn. It's bad for, you know, it's it's a criminal deed. But it's also bad for the Trump administration because Trump is trying to get out from under these allegations that he and his people are hooked up with the Russians. And here's Flynn having these conversations on the down low during the transition with Russia's ambassador to the U.S. Uh, to the U.S. and lying about it. So why did Trump fire him, though? I mean, it's a strange relationship, isn't it? Because, I mean, Trump obviously likes him now, seemed to regret it almost immediately, but he pulled the trigger very early in his presidency. Why did he do it? He did. The way you phrase the question answers itself, because it was early in his presidency. And here was a problem, you know, that they already have, you know, fresh out of the gate, on top of which, as Steve Bannon said to federal authorities in his interview with them, Trump and Flynn never really developed a kind of rapport. And so Trump wasn't exactly you know, crying a lot of tears when, when Flynn left. However, bear in mind that Flynn knew some things about Trump and knew some things about the campaign operation and about the early phase of the administration. And so when Trump in March of 2017 is saying to FBI Director Comey, I really hope you guys will let this go. I re- you know, Mike's a good guy. I hope you don't you know, pursue any criminal charges against him. One could infer from that that Trump is doing that not out of the goodness of his heart, but instead out of self-interest and concern that Flynn, as a cooperator for the Department of Justice, could say some things about Trump's campaign operation that Trump would rather not get out there. So tell me about this former Green Beret that you met. You were covering a rally for people arrested on January 6th, and you met this guy named, is it uh, Ivan Ranklin? Ranklin, correct. So so tell me about who he is and how he fits into this picture. Yeah, I, yeah, Charlie, I went to that September 2021 Justice for J6 rally that was put on supposedly in support of a lot of the Capitol um, rioters who were in the D.C. jail and elsewhere. And so I'm there, you know, just kind of um, checking things out. And some uh, kind of uh, short, heavyset, bald guy comes up to me, sees my media badge, holds up his iPhone and starts recording <laughs> an attempted conversation with me demanding to know why it is that I, as a member of the media, am not looking into certain things that would have helped Vice President Pence basically overturn the election results. And I just thought, this guy's a nut, and I'm going to you know, find, <laughs> find the nearest exit. The next day, I got a direct message on Twitter from some internet sleuth who said, do you know who that guy was who was following you around? He posted a, your brief exchange on Telegram. His name is Ivan Raiklin. So this is how I became acquainted with the life and times of Raiklin, who uh, at least at some point worked for the DIA when Flynn was there and may still do some business with the DIA, was also a Green Beret, was also got a law degree, is himself uh, from a family of Russians who immigrated to the U.S. just before he was born. And I bring all of him up, not just because it was sort of bizarre that he was harassing me. And by the way, he was wearing a T-shirt with Mike Flynn's image on it that said General Flynn above it. <laughs> but then Raiklin is another one of these guys who has a military background, who has been in orbit 
with Flynn for a while, uh, leading to concerns by a lot of folks that, um, you know, just what is this kind of sub cabal of military veterans led by Flynn up to? And uh, maybe nothing. But um, but then when you know that Flynn is going around the U.S. Uh, arguing for audits and still saying the election was stolen and that it's not too late to reverse the 2020 election results, and that guys like Ivan Raiklin are doing the very same thing and using Flynn's name in doing so, that there is some kind of connection and that there is some kind of coordination between all of them. I know we've talked about this before on other podcasts, but I'm interested in your thoughts about the developments over the last couple of weeks. You have Donald Trump uh, very explicitly using the term overturning the election, promising pardons for people involved in January 6th. Then you have Mike Pence giving the speech where he says that President Trump was wrong and Mitch McConnell uh, saying this was a violent insurrection aimed at stopping the peaceful transfer of power. You know, it, it, it's, it's interesting to me that that not only is the Republican Party not moving past January 6th, it, it appears to be absolutely stuck, but that MAGA world is not just in denial about January 6th. It almost feels as if they they want to internalize that spirit of January 6th. Do you know what I mean? That, mm-hmm, I certainly the, do. That, that it's that it's it's not like, OK, that wasn't so bad. I mean, you might have the Marco Rubio's who say that. But in in my in the world that you're writing about here, it becomes a positive, you know, a, a positive event, kind of a maybe a precursor, a sort of the the, the new normal in in MAGA world. Yeah, sure. I mean, so far from being a, you know, some kind of a scarlet letter to have been associated right. with January the 6th, it's it's really a badge of honor, as you're alluding to. It's, yeah. um, Charlie, I was at um, Trump's rally in um, Florence, Arizona on January the 15th, about three weeks ago. And, uh, and there, um, it, um, it was not just an article of faith that the election was stolen. It's that the people who, um, who tried to do something about it on January the 6th are the true martyrs, the true persecuted individuals, and further, that now the next step needs to be not just the, um, as Ivan Raiklin would say, remediation of the 2020 election, but also that there needs to be prosecution of the people who stole the election. So that's a new thing, that now, far from prosecuting people who rioted at the Capitol on January the 6th, we really need to be turning our attention to the true criminals, the people who stole the election to begin with. And I want to add, since you mentioned McConnell, that McConnell, his statement was remarkable because I, I think it pained him to make it. Yeah. McConnell's view has been, and he stated it quite clearly during the impeachment trial of 2021, that Trump's the man responsible for all of this and what was done was reprehensible. At the same time, McConnell's view is we cannot turn the page from Trump if we're always talking about Trump. Right. We've got to stop talking about him. And yet I think that this RNC censure resolution of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger was a bridge too far for McConnell. He felt like he had to remind people one more time uh, that the insurrection was what it was and that uh, Republicans cannot win through subtraction. The notion of like casting people out is anathema to the notion of broadening the base in order to win. Yeah, but that is the new Republican Party, right? I mean, it is it is a Republican Party built around revenge and purges. Yeah, it is. It's. I mean, it's become a vindictive party, and of course, you know, we've we've heard the Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy say over and over, 
to Democrats who have stripped first Marjorie Taylor Greene and then Paul Gosar of their committee assignments that we're going to do the same to you. We're going to there will be payback. And he's not saying that, you know, in sorrow rather than anger. I mean, he's saying that with glee. Uh, and so, you know, this is you know, a looming question for the GOP going forward. Do they have any other ideology other than vendetta, other than liberal tears? And, and uh, uh, there, you know, I think that the question, sadly, at least at this moment, answers itself. It is interesting. And I know you're working on a book on on the state of the Republican Party. And I, I mentioned before we started the podcast, I, I wrote my newsletter today about something that's happening in my home state in Wisconsin, where the Republican establishment here has done everything that they can do to appease the MAGAverse, uh, to suck up to Donald Trump, uh, to go along, you know, throw a little bit of red meat to the base. Uh, they're spending close to a million dollars on this completely bogus investigation of the 2020 election in order to sort of keep the crazies at bay. But none of it's working. No, no matter how much they kiss up to him. And Trump is all in in attacking the the speaker of the state assembly, Robin Voss, uh, mocking him, supporting one of the really fringe characters from the Wisconsin legislature who now looks like he's going to run for governor, which is going to screw things up. And when we were talking about it, I said that this whole question of being loyal to Trump, it's not just he's loyal until you cross some line, but sometimes there is a feral instinct that he has to people as a bully to go after them. And you use the word feral all the time, don't you? To describe yeah, yeah, yeah. something. There's something about Trump that he can't almost help himself. He sees weakness and he has to attack it. And and with the people who do the sucking up and the kissing up, he despises them and lashes out at them, even though they're trying to show that they're loyal to him. No, I think that's right. I mean, I use the phrase feral intelligence to describe Trump frequently because it's. I do think that he possesses that sort of animal instinct for recognizing and, and being able to size up strength versus weakness. He's always been very, very deferential to Putin. He's never said anything to cross him. Uh, he, he clearly sees Putin as the bully on the block. By contrast, he he does, when he can sense weakness in someone else, he seizes upon it. I do think is very transactional in the way that, you know, an animal is, in the way that an animal understands how an animal can get its food, how an animal can you know, survive from day to day and perhaps be the leader of the pack. Uh, it is about that sort of, um, you know, very, very baseline level of security. And, and, you know, it is true that Trump is loyal till he's not. It's also true that he can cast you out once he's decided you're disloyal to him. But if you once again prove yourself useful, he will bring you back in the fold. And, and we've even seen that with members right. of the media. Sure. You, know, you know, he'll scream and yell at a Maggie Haberman or something and say, you know, how awful she is. But once he decides that it's in his best interest to talk to her again, he does so. So I know your book's not out till the fall, but who is the future of the Republican Party right now? And I'm asking that thinking there are people who say, well, you know, it's going to be people like, like Ben Sass. No, it's not. It's more likely to be somebody who is like Michael Flynn or like Ron DeSantis. And by the way, I'm, yeah, I'm conflated. Yeah. So who is the future of the Republican Party post-Trump? Yeah. So if we just stipulate that by future of the Republican Party, we don't mean what will all Republicans look like mm -hmm, or even mm -hmm. most of them. But but right. who's going to be like a standard bearer? Who is going to be the voice in the room that people listen to the most? It's a person who we named at the top of the show, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, really? I, you know, really? uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really do think, I mean, look, she's already this person who's a freshman who didn't know anything about politics before she decided to run in, in the summer of 2019. 
is now saying to the likely next Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, if you want my vote, if you want to be Speaker of the House, here are among the things you have to do. You're going to have to strip John Katko of his committee assignments because he voted to impeach and has said bad things about me. Of course, now that's not necessary because Katko has has decided that he's going to spend time with his family. And you're going to have to give me committee assignments. You're going to have to do payback on the Democrats for their stripping of me and Gosar. I mean, she's dictating terms. And uh, furthermore, she is like one of the most powerful fundraisers on Capitol Hill today. And also, she's not doing anything in the way of legislation. She doesn't have any committee assignments. And so she's spending all her time online, all her time doing right-wing interviews, and she's building a following. She's using the 14th District of Georgia as her personal fiefdom, as a means by which she can basically call the shots on what conservatism is. And so do I think lots of people are going to be like Marjorie Taylor Greene? No, but she is the future insofar as she will shape the contours and the message of the party. She's doing it now. Extraordinary. Well, the article is Michael Flynn is still at war in the New York Times magazine. I strongly recommend it. Robert Drinkbearer, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Really a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We will do this all over again.